0: Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We will be reading from Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 23, in preparation for the sermon. Please give attention to the reading of God's Word. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table. until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the, the word of our God will stand forever. Will stand forever.
1: you pray with me? Father, as we come to your word, we would ask that you would open our eyes, that you would lift the veil, that we might see you in your beauty and your glory. That takes the work of your spirit. We don't get there by ourselves. So come to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I think it was, as a teenager, where I learned this, this phrase, <clears throat> it's where I perfected it, and it was just something I would say to myself, and sometimes out loud, if I just had a good explanation, <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't think it was just me, and I don't think it's just teens, it's not just skeptics, at some level, it's every one of us who uh, clamor for and call for and really long for an explanation. If just kind of get things laid out in a way that I can understand, I'll be okay. You recognize that? Uh, Albert Einstein <laughs> was once asked, uh, who knows a lot more than um, most of us, <laughs> about explanations, and he said this. Everything should be made as simple as possible but no simpler. As simple as possible, but no simpler. Um, others have said that, that the good uh, explanation is concrete. It's not abstract. It's tangible. It might be visual. But that's an explanation that, uh, that is helpful, that works. Um, explanations work, others have said, when they're sticky. You know what they mean by that it's memorable, it's, it, I can hang on to it, it's sticky, it doesn't fly away. It's easily communicated. But I like this one just as much as all of those, and it's this. An explanation works when it guides thinking in a new and better direction. Well, I would su- suggest to you that all of those things come together right here in this text in this passage that jesus comes alongside his disciples and you know enough of the story uh... if you don't know the story you'll recognize this part of it anyway that jesus himself is quite intriguing he's an intriguing personality compelling uh... he says following people followed but just as compelling as he was during those three years of his public ministry that are about to come to a close, he was also puzzling. He said things that begged for more explanation. And oftentimes, my picture is the disciples you know, would hear what Jesus said and look at each other. and Did you get that? Did he say everything that there is to say? Why is he holding back on some of these things? And in the passage that we're stepping into, in the room that we're stepping into today, he comes right through the door with the explanation that they've been waiting to hear. Uh, It's Passover. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread is also what it's called. Those are two events that are so wrapped together that they're interchangeable. You make one trip to Jerusalem to celebrate these two things, and for, for generations now, it has been one of three annual feasts. And the disciples have, have watched something unfold. Uh, with, the, with the death and the resurrection of Lazarus not long before, but not immediately before, the, the scene changed radically for Jesus and his followers because when you read the end of John 11 what you see is from this point on Jesus no longer walked in public among the Jews and the reason for it was that the scribes and Pharisees, the religious officials had virtually determined this shall go no further it can't go any further without jeopardizing this privileged position that we have in this Roman jurisdiction that's how it was working Rome, you see, was the power. They were in control. And they allowed the religious practice of the Jewish people to continue. They, they tolerated it. They acknowledged it. They didn't say stop. But here are the boundaries within which you, Jews, will, must carry out that practice. You can do this... As long as it is, does not jeopardize Rome's authority and jurisdiction overall. And what the religious officials, the scribes and Pharisees, which for, for a lot of us, those are the bad guys. I mean, that's, that's, that's synonymous with what's wrong, uh, religiously speaking. And they did miss the boat, they missed the message. They didn't hear because they couldn't hear because they were so committed to a religious system like maybe some of us so committed to a religious system that they could not hear what Jesus was saying their ears were closed to it but but it wasn't just that their ears were closed closed their their minds were not open to jeopardizing what this good thing they had going with Rome and they couldn't risk a new threat a new personality to arise on the scene who would clamor, uh, whose, whose, whose public life was beginning to compete with the allegiance of Rome. He was being referred to, people were following. Uh, when, when Jesus showed up, people showed up and they wanted more and they were expecting more. And like the, like the, the 12, the, most of those that followed were not looking simply for healing. And miracles, what they were really hoping for was deliverance. Because this Roman authority was too much for for their good. They they knew they were confined, and they knew this was you can't you divide allegiances between between Caesar and Christ. And they knew something had to give. And so virtually with, with the raising of Lazarus, Jesus death warrant was signed. And what you see from that point on is what had become attempts to confine and control became a a plot and a plan to arrest and to condemn. That's what's going on as the 12 have made their way. Uh, Our outline today is, just briefly, we're going to talk about the shadows in which this occurs. We're going to talk about the foreshadows that this uh points forward to something else. And then we're gonna talk for about the fulfillment of it all. Those are the banners over our time here today. It's called the feast of unleavened bread uh, because there wasn't time for the yeast and the leaven to do their work in this moment that we heard read earlier from Exodus 12. Unleavened meant there's not enough time to prepare the whole meal, so do this quickly. And so each year as they gathered three times a year for an annual feast, this was one of them, they would eat this dry, flat, unrisen bread. Uh, and the texture and the, and the shape of it, which was so different from what was normal, would remind them this was a meal prepared in haste at the Lord's instructions. Unleavened bread <clears throat> was a part of this festival that they gathered around but so was Passover. Um, and so what we see here is chief priests, and the plot thickens, and, and their desire, their attempt to, um, to come together and to, and to corner Jesus in some place where they could take him, uh, the, the plotting thickened. The plan thickened. And here we see uh, that there's something... Bigger though than just chief priests and religious officials and a disgruntled or disappointed follower of Christ named Judas. Um, I've been helped often by John Stott on things like this, and his words here I find helpful. Behind these chief priests and scribes loomed an even more sinister power. We're reminded of the cosmic view which Luke often evidences. Just as he is is concerned not only with one nation, but with the world, so he is concerned not with this world only, but with the super world, what Paul Paul's the heavenly places, where spiritual forces are locked in the ultimate conflict between good and evil. And that lies behind the scenes and explains what we're about to to witness. That Judas... One of the twelve, the one that was entrusted with the money bags, one who was one of them, one who was so much one of them that when Jesus says, the hand of the one who would betray me is on the table, nobody pointed to Judas. No one suspected him. They didn't latch on and point point each other and, and point to Judas, poke each other there was something about it he was one of them but something had occurred and in John we read it as well that that the the great enemy of the gospel Satan the devil had put it in the mind of Judas to do this thing Luke's language is Satan entered him and in John we see those interchangeably so it was something that was not um, innate for Judas. It came from an enemy, this super war that was going on, something bigger than what, what could be uh, pointed to in the moment. But a real enemy against a real God, taking shape right there. Uh, earlier in Luke, we, you would remember maybe about the temptations Uh, And we read that Jesus was tempted by the enemy. And when the temptations were over, do you remember how it's described? That the devil left him until an opportune time. And that's where we are. We're at that opportune time where Satan enters Judas. And he begins to, to change him from the inside out. And to use him for his purposes. You know, we're not really told all of Judas's motives. We know money was involved. We know it was a significant amount of money, but it wasn't the lottery. It wasn't a fortune. It wasn't enough to really, really justify it. It may be that, like some others, Judas had concluded, you know what, I'm not going to be a part of a worldly kingdom after all. This is coming to a screeching halt. Right here. We don't know why. But we do know that what Judas did simplified the work for the scribes and the Pharisees. They knew they needed to find Jesus at a time when the public was not around. We read that more than once. They would have found an upper room celebration of the Passover, a perfect time to corner him and whisk him off in chains. And maybe that's why Jesus does a little, oh, advance work on the celebration. Work that foreshadows what is a a celebration, work for a celebration that will foreshadow what is about to unfold. So that Jesus knows that as we celebrate it, it must have been celebrated, it was required to have been celebrated within the walls of Jerusalem. You came from your home you came to Jerusalem, you bought your sacrifice there, you got the lamb that was qualified from the chief priests and their uh, associates and you brought it and you prepared. Um, it was a crowded place. These, these meals were celebrated usually together and not alone, usually in groups of 10 to 20. Uh, people that had residences there would share their residence with travelers that would come in and celebrate this festival together and so Jesus looks at the twelve and he picks out two and he says it's your job Peter and John want you to go into Jerusalem and when you see a man carrying a jar of water some people actually suggest that it was unusual to see a man carrying jars of water Uh, that's debated was it only women's work to carry jars of water Men often traveled with water skins. But regardless of whether it was the jar that the man would be carrying, to leave no doubt, there were some prearranged code words. That's really what it is. Jesus says, I want you to go and use these words, and he will then know that you are my disciples. So, and and then just do what he says. Go where he takes you and prepare the feast. The preparation including, included that lamb. It included bitter herbs. It included bread. It included th- three loaves of unleavened bread and enough wine for four cups for whoever would be celebrating this feast. Watered down, like ours, <laughs> but, but enough wine and bread and enough of the lamb to feed everybody there. And that was the job that belonged to Peter and John. And strikingly, up until that point none of the twelve knew where the meal would be served and now these two have information that none others have including Judas so any opportunity to betray Jesus at this point doesn't exist but it's in the upper room as they gather together that we really step not only from the dark shadows of this sinister plot and plan into the foreshadowing of the meal preparations, but we step really into the fulfillment. And that's what Jesus, that's the the word that Jesus uses as he describes this this significant moment. You see, when he gives his explanation, when he explains his death, when he explains what it's all about, The disciples then begin to accept it. They begin to believe it and understand this is bigger. This is not just an earthly kingdom. Jesus is about to say it's bigger than that. It's bigger than what you thought. And and the reality of that transformed their lives. And to the degree that you and I hear this explanation, accept it, believe it, your lives are transformed as well. Our lives are transformed. When we recognize that Jesus is saying that this death that is right before me is what all of history has been moving toward. You thought that an earthly kingdom that would disrupt and dislodge the grip that Rome has on Jerusalem right now is what you need. But I'm telling you that my life and my death is about something far, far beyond that. Far, far beyond your wildest imaginations. And what takes place here, you'll never forget. He takes the bread as, <clears throat> as the presider of a family would have done. When, when, the, when the Passover was celebrated, the, the presider would would stand in front and explain what it is. He would take the bread and the cup and he would say, this is the Passover celebration. And after he had given thanks, there was a question asked. And this is how Passover was practiced. There was a question asked almost always by the youngest member of the family who would ask this question, why is this night different From all others. And then the presider would say, using passages from Deuteronomy, that God looked upon our suffering and brought us out, from Deuteronomy 26. And then he would hold the bread up and say, This is the bread of our affliction, from Deuteronomy 16. The bread of affliction our ancestors ate when they came from Egypt. But Jesus takes the bread. And he doesn't say, this is the bread of our affliction. He said, this is the bread of my affliction. It is my affliction. It is my stepping in. It is my life given for you. He took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. My blood poured out for you. My life given, my blood poured out, and then the new covenant of my blood. And when they heard new covenant, the light goes on again. Because from Jeremiah, they knew this day would come as well. A, A new covenant where, not like the old covenant, but a new covenant where I will put my law within you. And I will write it on your hearts. And I will be your God, and you will be my people. And no longer, Jeremiah says, quoting No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember it no more. And as this drama unfolds, what's becoming clear to those gathered in that room, including Judas, for the Jews, the Passover meant deliverance from, from Egypt and Canaan, into Canaan. But now it's being filled with a full meaning and from this year onwards it will signify to the people of God a deliverance from the profoundest kind. Deliverance from sin and death. Moses delivered a people from bondage in that exodus. And Jesus stands before the twelve and says I'm about to deliver you from a greater bondage and it's not just you. And then he says something very intriguing. In fact, the picture we get is Jesus didn't finish the meal. He says, I will not drink this, I will not continue this until it is fulfilled in the kingdom. But you divide this among yourselves. And in that moment, one thing occurs that we sometimes miss by reading this story that what was the Passover became something new. What was the Passover became the Lord's Supper. But it also became something else. It became a foretaste of another banquet that Jesus says, I will not do this one with you anymore, but I will do it with you another day, a day to come. Uh, John Piper explained it like this. I thought the Passover was fulfilled in the death of Jesus, our final Passover lamb, he says. Passover was, yearly, was a yearly celebration of the time in Egypt when God sent an angel of death who passed over homes where blood from a slain lamb was on the doorpost. It was a celebration of past deliverance from Egypt and the future deliverance when Messiah comes. But in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul calls Christ our Passover lamb. In other words, God will save anyone from judgment who banks his hope, his or her hope, on the blood of Jesus. So that's a, it's reasonable then to conclude that the Passover was fulfilled on the cross when the lamb of God was slain to deliver us from death. I have lived, frankly, with that understanding for quite a while. And maybe you as well. But did you hear what Jesus said? This will not be fulfilled until it is fulfilled in the kingdom. And when we look at what John says about the kingdom, we begin to see what Jesus has in mind. In Revelation 5, John says that there's a day when 24 elders sing to Christ the Lamb. These words. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And so... The key to understanding Jesus' take on this is that the Passover lamb was slain to ransom people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so what's going on in this upper room stops short of that because that has not yet occurred. Those have not been brought into the fold, into the, into the body of Christ. And until that day occurs, this that it ports, points to is not fulfilled. I'm gonna wait, Jesus says, until I can eat it new with you and with all those that are ransomed that you will gather from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. It's on this night, with bread in one hand and a cup in another, that Jesus explains his death, that the disciples begin to get an explanation that they can live with and die with. (laughs) They begin to see this is more than just an intriguing personality who heals and restores life, but he frees us from the bondage, and it's bigger than the bondage of Egypt. And some of you walked through a door this morning into this room in bondage, in bondage to something. And yours is not like mine. And mine is not like yours. But we know what it means to be trapped and controlled by something greater than ourselves. Something that we cannot change about ourselves. That's what Jesus came to do. To free you from that. In Luke 9, it's Jesus and Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it's described there. They talk about... There will be a day when Jesus departs. And the word that they use for depart that Luke uses for departure in Luke chapter 9, do you know what it is? Exodus. You thought that was a Hebrew word. <laughs> well, that's, that's Greek word. That's a Greek word for the way or a road with a prefix out of. And what Jesus is to us is he is a road, he is a way out of the bondage that, that constrains us, that darkens us, that cripples us in, in every way. Those things about my life and yours that we know are not right, that we can't shake, and they, and they create uh, shame and guilt. Rightfully so. And Jesus says, I've come to deliver you from that. To take you out of here. And those from every tongue and tribe and nation that you will gather. That's what I've come to do. That's the fulfillment. That we see a partial fulfillment in the sense that Christ dies days, just hours really from this. But there's a fulfillment yet to come. There's two words that are not on the surface of this passage. They're underneath it, but they're right on the surface of that passage in Exodus that we read. I want to close with this. They're these. The first word is substitution. In Exodus, in this Passover, this original Passover event, someone was going to, something was going to die. Either the firstborn or the lamb that was slain, whose blood covers the doorpost. Something was going to die. And Jesus says, I am your substitute. I am the substitute lamb. I am the paschal Passover lamb. You know, when we read these accounts of the upper room here in the Gospels, there's really no reference to the lamb. Did you notice? We do know that that the two disciples were sent to make preparations on the day that the lamb was to be sacrificed, so it's reasonable to conclude that there was a lamb on the table. But there's no mention of the lamb. There's a lot of talk about bread and wine and the kingdom to come, but there's no reference to the lamb. And I don't know, we weren't there. And Luke and the gospel writers don't take us into every detail of what occurred during those uh, moments or hours together. But it could very well be that the lamb was on the table prepared for the meal, the right proportion for those that were around. And Jesus took his hands and laid it aside. Could it be? Could he be that he took the lamb off the table and laid it behind him? As he begins to explain about the bread and the cup, could it be that he stretched his own arms across the table and said, I'm your lamb? Whether he did that, we may not know until a world to come. But what we do know is that's what he was saying. It was very clear to those gathered around the table. It was so clear to them that it began to transform their lives. They began to see it's not about Jerusalem, it's not about this nation, it's about a world to come. It's about it's about God's redemptive work in the world in the person of Christ. And that was enough to electrify their souls, to transform them and to send them, in many cases, to their own death out of allegiance to this paschal lamb who was slain. That's one word, substitution. The other one, quickly, is satisfaction. Uh, In Exodus, the lamb had to satisfy in two directions. It had to satisfy the requirement of a holy God. It had to be without spot and without blemish. And we know that the righteousness of Christ is all of that. That his righteousness satisfies a holy and a righteous God. That's what the lamb had to fit. It was without spot. But it also had to satisfy in another direction. The needs of the people. Did you catch that earlier in the passage that was read from Exodus? It had to be enough to fill every one at the table. There had to be enough where you left this Passover meal satisfied. And Jesus, friends, is both. He satisfies the requirement of a holy God. And he satisfies the needs of a people. He fulfills the demands and he meets your needs. There is no spiritual need that you have. There is no other place to run for grace and mercy. No other way to deal with shame and guilt other than in the blood of Christ, it is sufficient for you. And those who taste and see here that the Lord is gracious will on that day, at another meal, when Jesus celebrates it with us, will see that Christ is the sustenance of our soul and He is our satisfaction. And that creates a new appetite for Him today. It does for me. Looking to a day when Christ will bring us into his banqueting house. And where his banner over us is love. That is transforming. And that's my prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, we don't get there on our own. We ask you to open our eyes to see something that we don't get by ourselves, and our hope and expectation today is that you would continue to open our eyes to help us to see that the work of Christ for us, Christ our substitute, is also our satisfaction. There is nothing else that we long for than what we find in Christ. It's in his name that we pray, amen.